I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and I'm joined today by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. How are you doing these days, Chuck? Hey, really well. Really, really well. You know, we're actually going, as soon as you and I are done here, I am going camping with my family for a couple of days. So uh, yeah, so looking forward to that and it'll be really fun. That sounds like a good use of the weekend. Yeah. So our conversation today revolves around an article put out this week by the American Conservative written by Theo Mackie Pollock entitled Zoning Reform is Not Leftism. This article is a response to recent attempts by politicians and media to frame the issue of suburban zoning as a left-right controversy. While leftist politicians and organizations have embraced proposals around expanding property rights in single-family areas, the author says that this is not a leftist issue, and in fact, Americans, regardless of their political religion, should recognize the many benefits associated with building traditionally patterned neighborhoods again, an approach to city building that Americans deserted in the middle of the 20th century in favor of restrictive zoning rules, suburban sprawl, strip malls scattered with corporate chains. An important distinction to make, I think, right off the bat is that this discussion absolutely does not aim to make it illegal to build single-family houses. I've seen a lot of people kind of responding to this discussion in that way. This is rather a conversation that has been happening for a long time, reflecting on our recent invention of single-family-only zoning. And what this tool has resulted in, in terms of a variety of factors, I think people from any political ideology can actually resonate with. I'm glad the American conservative published a response to this as someone who has lived in many wonderful neighborhoods with a broad variety of housing types. It's incredibly frustrating to see such a nuanced topic around how we build great neighborhoods become a bipartisan issue. And I'm tired of rhetoric that suggests the American dream is limited to post-1950 suburbs because that's just not true, in my opinion. This is one of those issues that I feel like we're being pushed. As with everything, let's just step back and say that. As with everything, we are being pushed now to frame it in a left-right perspective. Everything, you know, from housing to race to finance to your internet access, what have you. I even swear like my breakfast is getting like left-right, you know, perspective. Like if you <laughs> if you don't put it in that framework, you know, you're either insensitive, you're ignoring the truth, you're blind to reality, you're, you know, wh- whatever the narrative is. I feel like part of that is, you know, just tis the season, right? I mean, we're three months away from three months, two months and change away from, you know, the presidential election. And so, you know, there's some benefit from national political figures and national political parties to have us frothing at the mouth, putting everything in this left-right perspective. I do think what is lost though, and I think what you see coming through in this article and what you see coming through in, in a lot of these 
attempts to embrace nuance in the discussion of housing, housing reform, zoning reform, affordable housing, it is the top versus bottom, the bottom up versus top down conundrum. Because what you really have here is you have a certain, let's just look at the, you know, what I think has been characterized as the right side of the political spectrum. On the conservative side, the right side of the, the political spectrum, what you have is you have groups who are arguing on one hand for top-down government control of housing through zoning. Basically, like we're going to mandate what can be done on this property and we're going to use like the heavy hand of government to make that happen because it gives us like the outcome we desire, the outcome we want. You then have these what I would just call the right of the political spectrum, the conservative like bottom-up group, which is more concerned with markets and feedback and individual liberty and having less government regulation, saying like, why are we doing this? And what you see here in the American conservative is that latter part of the right conversation. I think we see the same thing on the left side of the spectrum. There's this whole conversation about affordable housing and the way we get affordable housing is we go out and build. And so we need the heavy hand of government to come in and mandate that you can build condo units here and you can build, you know, this type of building here and you can't have single family zoning here. And, you know, we got to have big programs and rent control and all this stuff to make that happen. And then you have another side of the left of this conversation that is saying, you know, that's the path to gentrification. That's the path to neighborhood tumult. What we need is incremental development at the local level. What we need is many hands building our building. We need, you know, neighborhoods to be able to evolve and adapt. And as someone who really has problems with that former conversation, I find myself more in agreement with, because I, I tend to be a conservative voter. I find myself in lockstep with the bottom-up liberals, the bottom-up progressives, and I find myself very at odds with the top-down Republicans, the top-down conservatives. I think that's what you're seeing in this article is the idea that, you know, should housing be a top-down thing or should it be something that is more bottom-up? And, and I'm, you know, clearly in the latter camp. Well, what you're describing is a political compass that is not just left and right, but there's also the quadrants of authoritarian versus libertarian, essentially. And people fall all along those spectrums. And, and I think you described that really well, is that, you know, when it comes to housing, to what extent are we applying authoritarian or top-down policies? And then to what extent should we really be promoting bottom-up strategies? When I see headlines that read, you know, Democrats are going to destroy your single-family neighborhoods, I just feel a great sense of dread about how poor our public discourse is and how disconnected politics at the federal level are from local conversations, and in this case around housing. Americans have an incredibly distorted relationship with the traditional settlement pattern. Most people today who, you know, were have only recently been living and and were not born before World War II, they basically see the conventional suburban development pattern as normal. 
even though that has only been implemented since World War II, when we did this great suburban experiment. Prior to that time, we built cities in a way that was much more traditional, composed of villages that were laid out efficiently and anchored by civic institutions and businesses, composed of a variety of housing types. This way of building communities can you know, be seen across the world and is a physical manifestation or a remnant of an economy that operated locally in a community that was more nimble. There's a lot of value and wisdom, as you've said before, in building a neighborhood this way, but it's a practice that we've abandoned. Conventional suburbs may seem normal to us, but their composition and layout reflects an approach that is top-down, and it's incredibly new to the human experience. Much like cars and smartphones and computers, new inventions have unintended consequence. And the consequence that is central to strong towns is the fiscal one largely because nobody sat down in 1950 to account for the long-term infrastructure expenses and adjust our tax models or our development approaches effectively. The other consequence is that uses are explicitly separate, especially housing types. And that now seems normal to people who grew up in those types of settings. It seems that single-family zoning, although a recent invention, has been adopted as something that is a foundation of American life. And I'd actually argue that traditional neighborhoods are much more foundational, not only because they are fiscally more productive, but because they are the kinds of places that you build when you're operating a strong local economy. Let's make the, I think, what is the best argument we can for suburbia or for you know keeping single family zoning. And this might not be the argument that true advocates of it would make. I mean, I, I wrote an article for the American conservative actually a couple months ago in response to a Stanley Kerr's article about Biden and the Dems are, you know, coming to destroy your suburbs. And I, I wrote a, a piece to push back on that. Part of the response to that was, you know, really intelligent in the comment section, but a, a huge swath of it was just this ugliness that I never even anticipated seeing on a site that I really like. I mean, I like the American conservative. I like, I like writing for them. But when we talk about, you know, people who would say like explicitly, like, I don't want, you know, those people in my neighborhood that was there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horribly ugly, but let, let's make it, let's make a good argument for the suburbs. And, and here's what I think it is just from an economic standpoint. Nassim Taleb has said a number of times that McDonald's is a popular restaurant, not because they have good food, but because their food is predictable. In other words, he made a statement, I think on Twitter this week that he was in, you know, um, like Milan or something like that. And he went to the train station. Here's all these people dining at McDonald's in what is, you know, a city with amazing, amazing food. He's like, why does this happen? How does this happen? And he says, because if you go to McDonald's, you know what you're going to get. You're not going to get something awesome, but you're not going to get something terrible either. And out in the rest of the world, let's just call this the traditional world, you know, the, the Italian city, you're going to have more variability. You're going to have stuff that is really good. You're going to have stuff that is not so good. Uh, and there's going to be more variability. When we look at American suburbs, what you have is a packaged product where you know what you're getting. And you're not going to have, you know, a huge amount of variability. You're not going to have a, a huge type of volatility projecting out forward. This is essential if you are going to do something at scale. 
If you are going to uh, create mortgage-backed securities where you package 2,000 different mortgages from across the country together into one security and sell that off on a secondary market and have pension funds buy it so you can drive down interest rates and get people into more housing, what you need is a product that can be standardized. You need McDonald's. You need Domino's Pizza. You need something that you know, consistently over and over and over again, you know what you're buying because the people who buy a mortgage-backed security not only don't know what house they're buying, you know, they, they don't know the condition of it. They don't know the owner. They don't know anything about it. If you went back to a more traditional style of building, what you're talking about is one that is ultimately less efficient, one that is ultimately a little more volatile, one where the mortgage would be extended to, you know, the person who yeah, we know them in the community. They're going to fix up this place or what have you, or no, we don't know that person. There's good to that uh, because you know, you're going to get a, a more resilient development pattern. You're going to get things that I think can attune and, and shape to different needs instead of trying to fit everyone into one box. But you also have problems with that. You know, I know this family. They're a really good family. I grew up with them. I don't know this family. Uh, they're new to town. I don't feel the same comfort extending a loan to them. Well, the first family is a white family of people that, you know, grew up in my neighborhood. The next one is an immigrant family from a different country that I don't know. So all of a sudden, by having volatility and by having local nuance, you create room for a, a different type of despotism to sneak in. I, I think the best argument for suburbs is that they standardize that. They take they take all that out and they make this top-down standardized product that can be repeated over and over the same way a Domino's pizza or a McDonald's hamburger can. I just think we've reached whatever limits of value that is providing and desperately, desperately need to go in a different direction. First and foremost, by we've created our own NIMBYs, right? Like this development pattern can't evolve and this debate you see right now over single family zoning is like the prime example of that. We can't even talk about it without evoking uh, rioting and looting and all this happening in our, our beige cul-de-sacs. And I think that that is a byproduct of the system we've created. It's, it's dysfunctional in its form. It's also dysfunctional in, in how it's made us as humans. Well, I actually think that it's even kind of insulting to act like these environments are quintessentially American places. As uh, James Howard Kunstler once said, that's not good enough for Americans. I mean, he said that in a speech quite a while ago, I think back in 1994, and I tend to agree with that. Suburban development only exists thanks to government subsidies and distorted policies, and I'd even go as far as calling it social engineering to some extent. Suburban zoning is government interference, and as the author wrote, traditional American neighborhoods grew in response to markets, not necessarily zoning. I think that you know the federal, state, and local subsidies that incentivize unproductive development, if that all stopped, then we would be building in a much different way. Principally, zoning is a tool for managing nuisances and common property disputes. For example, there's a clear risk to public health if a factory that emits harmful fumes moves in right next to your neighborhood. So it's reasonable to set expectations for people who are going to come in and live and invest in their community that the common good will be protected. With single-family zoning, the government is, in a sense, saying that other types of housing are nuisances to the community. 
And I'd like for somebody to somebody to seriously make that case about how other types of housing really create a nuisance to in to a neighborhood. I, I just want to know what makes a triplex a nuisance and what's wrong with having accessory dwelling units, essentially being able to respond to that next increment of housing development. And expanding property rights actually creates an opportunity to maybe convert garages into ADUs so that you could have flexibility in your living situation. And you could also supplement unexpected costs associated with homeownership. Enabling more housing variety, it can really just help a community become more strong and resilient. So as a young person, it's just frustrating that we're pretending that the American dream is limited to single-family neighborhoods in the suburbs because that's not what I see in real life. The various types of non-single-family houses in my own neighborhood and many other neighborhoods that I lived in where I was a renter is in fact not destroying the community. In fact, those sixplexes and small mixed-use buildings are probably creating a positive return on investment that supplements long-term costs associated with maintaining our infrastructure. Those are like the hidden secret of, of what keeps our community resilient. So the defense against change to me is a failure to set clear expectations around how a neighborhood functions and evolves over time. Many subdivisions and single-family zoned areas were built not to evolve or respond to market or societal changes. Thus, there's a sense of entitlement around the idea that the community must stay the same forever. And to me, that seems to be very much in contrast with the way people and places operate, just human nature in general. And in addition to that, if a community is so fragile that other types of housing are just going to completely dismantle it, I think that that is just not a strong community then. I agree with you, but let me give you the opposite view. That's the marketing brochure. It's a little bit like you buy in at the resort you go to and it's like, hey, you know, you're going to get your own room at this resort and you're going to have your own masseuse and uh, you're going to have your own private whirlpool and uh, your own, you know, bathroom. And then you show up and it's more like a dorm, you know, you're like, well, yeah, you started out with your own room, but now more people show up. And so you're going to have to share and the bathroom's a communal one up the hall and da, da, da. You would be upset. You'd be like, well, this is not the marketing brochure, like sold me something different. And, and the reality is, is that when we're selling the suburbs, we're selling a version of exclusivity and the people who are buying into that are essentially buying into, I mean, that's, that's the marketing brochure. Now, now you and I know that financially it's a loser, like it's not tenable. It doesn't work, but it's hard to be a harsh judge of someone who doesn't grasp that because like literally we built an entire economy around providing that at scale. And, and when it started to fail in 2008 and 2009, uh, we pumped everything we had into propping it back up. It's one of these things where like, I can look at this system and I can say like, this is really messed up. Like this is really whacked. And what we've done is just intergenerationally almost evil. It's just like an, it's like epically bad. That being said, like the people who are in it to me have always seemed, you know, outside of like what I commented on earlier about, you know, well, we don't want immigrants in our neighborhood and we don't want, you know, what have you, like we bought that exclusively. If you get beyond that part, which I, I do think is disgusting, there's this other part of it that's wholly rational. 
and and wholly rational in a way where if you even talk to you know people who have grown up poor in urban areas oftentimes their greatest aspiration is to be able to move to the suburbs you know that that's like they bought into the brochure too so you know what what you and I in a sense are aspiring to or are talking about or or would like to see come about I think would bring us to a better world and would be a better place. And I can make the argument that it is the traditional city. It is the way like humans are built and designed to live. And there's a really conservative part of that insight, but it's not the marketing brochure. You know, it's not what we've been selling to people. And, and I think that what you're seeing now in the American conservative, in other liberal publications where they're taking the opposite side is this debate over something that ultimately started as a nonpartisan cultural consensus that is now breaking down along these crazy partisan lines. And I find it to be very incoherent. Yeah. Well, and I think there's also a question about how do you implement zoning reform, which is something that the author brings up and I think that Ben Carson made an argument against enacting zoning reform through the federal government, which I, I could see the argument for that because the author brings out the idea of subsidiarity, meaning that local policy decisions should be left to local bodies. And as somebody who works on local policy and communities around the country, I do believe that housing reform can be implemented with broader consensus with better urban design at the local level. A broad federal overhaul that has outcomes that I don't think we've thought through completely would likely result in even more public opposition because it would be perceived as a misuse of federal power when people have expectations that their neighborhood would never change, even if it ultimately results in expansion of property rights. So the counter argument to that is that that these things should be made at the state or regional level because taxpayers should not be adversely impacted by government decisions when they're, you know, that is if you're using federal dollars for infrastructure spending and that creates wealth in one part of town, zoning shouldn't be restricting you from being able to live there. So it's an interesting discussion about how you actually implement zoning reform and it does dismantle people's expectations about what they bought into. The proposals right now on the progressive side are to use tax subsidies out of HUD, et cetera, to go in and say, all right, if you will build more affordable housing, we will give you tax subsidies to do that. We'll, we'll you know, give you direct money or we'll give you tax breaks or you know, the like, use opportunity zones or what have you to, to make this happen. And there is a conservative argument that says, well, we, you know, we don't want government to come in and do that. I think the important insight here is that that's exactly what was done in the 1930s and 1940s and the 1950s to create suburbia. Suburbia began, and I realize that it is precious to conservatives now, but it began as a progressive reform, as a way to, in a sense, get rid of tenement housing, get rid of uh, you know some of the, the, the difficulties of of urban life. The idea was let's spread everybody out. Let's make an ownership society. Let's, you know, make this a more egalitarian country by giving people a chance to get into their own home. And these were all progressive programs. These were, these were all programs of the left designed to create, you know, this, this new version of America that would be more equal and more equitable and more just. 
And yeah, I mean, there, there was all kinds of nastiness in how it was implemented. We're human, like that stuff that I'm not dismissing it, but like to pretend that you would have a perfect program from the top down and, and nothing bad would happen, I think is naive. But the reality is, is you have people now today on the political left who are complaining about the permanence and the intransigence and you know the negative aspects of the suburbs who essentially want to recreate the exact program that created the suburbs in order to destroy the suburbs or to change them radically. And I just find like this is dealing with the one ring, right? I mean, that's a that's a Lord of the Rings uh, reference for, for people who are not Lord of the Rings fans, but like the idea that can you wield the one ring and wield it for good? I personally think that, you know, when we're messing with these big top-down programs, you might get what you want for a decade or two or maybe a generation, but without the feedback mechanism, without you know, with the long, long feedback loops, what you risk over time is what we have created, uh, which is, you know, bread and circuses for the masses that we can never change. Yeah. Well, it's taking top-down policies over time and applying them to, you know, an entire country or an entire state and just assuming that there won't be any adverse outcomes. There's just a tremendous amount of hubris associated with assuming that that you figured it all out and you have the right decision. And so then you should push that decision on, on other communities, which is, you know, why I, I kind of like the idea for different communities to find their own approach to dealing with the, you know, fiscal unproductivity of de their development pattern in their suburbs. I think that bottom up strategies are not only a more empathetic way of dealing with it, but it's, it could result in more creativity and actually coming up with, with a smarter way of, of changing how we build cities and evolving how we build cities. So I think we will wrap up this conversation on that note today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we've been watching, reading, listening to, or just anything that's been captivating our time this week. So Chuck, what have you been up to? I'm writing a book and it's actually due very soon. And uh, as I said last week, I had to take some time off to let my brain heal a little bit, which was time I was supposed to spend writing and haven't. So I've, I've been spending every evening, like whatever the, like binge writing, maybe you would call it. I, I don't know, cramming. In the meantime, though, we're, I did say we're going camping this weekend. It's a long scheduled camping trip. I'm bringing with me a book called The Life and Death of Ancient Cities. Uh, it was just published last month. It's by a guy named Greg Wolf. I saw an interview with him, and the book looks absolutely fascinating. And so I, I bought a copy. I'm going to give it a try. Um, I also will just say, I've had on my desk here at work, this is going to sound a little weird, but it, it's, it's been interesting. I bought a book called Japanese Death Poems. Zen monks and haiku poets on the verge of death. And this is not morbid. I mean, it's actually quite the opposite. Um, it's basically people who are, you know, facing end of life, who are writing, you know, their thoughts and their poems down from this kind of Eastern perspective. And, you know, it'll describe the person a little bit, and then it will give their poem, and then it will, you know, talk a little bit. It's been one of these books when my mind has wandered, I've picked up and just kind of browsed through, and I've found it. I found it very enjoyable is the wrong word. I think very meditative, uh, which has been, you know, I'm, I've been appreciative of. 
Are you allowed to tell listeners what your next book is about? I actually published the cover on Twitter like a few weeks back. Oh. Um, yeah, the book is called Confessions of a Traffic Engineer. I'm sorry, that was the original. Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. So that, that was my title, and then they changed it, and now I got them to change it back. Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, uh, Strongtown's Approach to Transportation. And that's what it's about. It's about the Strongtown's approach to, uh, to transportation uh, with you know my own personal confessions as a failed engineer. Uh, kind of layered into that. So yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to have it done in, uh, in the fall and I'm a little bit behind on that, but it, it is scheduled to come out uh, sometime in the early part of next year, which is really exciting. Well, I'm very much looking forward to reading that. I am actually, so kind of a repeat, I'm actually still reading The Geography of Nowhere and it's not because it's not a good book. I just kind of put it down for a little while and I've been reading it slowly. It's actually a very, very good book. So I'll bring it up again this week because I highly recommend it. I'm at the part where he is comparing three different cities. He's comparing Los Angeles, Portland, and Detroit. And because that book was written back in 1994, I almost kind of look, I feel like I'm looking into the future and seeing what the further outcomes are of those different cities and their their situation. I'd also like to give a shout out to Bentonville, Arkansas. I visited there next week. I went to Northwest Arkansas to go mountain biking. And uh, I had never been to Bentonville before. And was incredibly impressed by how nice of a place it is. It's It has a great downtown. They're getting a lot of new development, all different types of housing, uh, beautifully designed housing, by the way. No garages that I can see on the street. And um, they have a trail system that connects directly with their downtown. You, it's just a couple of blocks away. You can just bike to it and it connects all the way through Northwest Arkansas. So I was so impressed with um, all of the bike infrastructure and, you know, wish my own town had a little bit of that. They've done some great stuff. And I actually really like Fayetteville too. I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to be there, but- um, I have not. Another city that from your area of the world that is well worth a weekend visit at the least, doing some really cool stuff. So yeah, there's- it's funny because, you know, the, the center of the country does have a number of these places like this that uh, I think anyone visiting would go, wow, this is this is really well done. And uh, that's certainly one of them. Yeah, Arkansas has a lot of hidden gems that I didn't learn about until I moved to Kansas City. And the, I guess people go to Arkansas a lot, or at least the people that I know here. So I'm very impressed with a lot of the towns in Arkansas and was very impressed with Bentonville and everything they've done to invest in themselves. So very, very cool. Very cool. So does Missouri though, right? Missouri has some cool places to go to. Um, you know, my, my town of Kansas City doesn't exactly have um, the bike infrastructure like Bentonville, but there are a lot of kind of small towns that are worth, worth visiting to. When I was a kid, my, so this would, yeah, I'm 47. So this would have been, you know, 35, 30, 38 years ago. My parents brought us to Branson once. And my only recollection of Branson <laughs> is that it's like 
a five mile, like it just seemed like it went on forever. It's just a huge traffic jam with like uh-huh. strip malls and fast food places and stuff. Just like one big long strode basically. And I, I don't know if it's different now. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to castigate them because, you know, maybe they've changed that and maybe it's nice, but, uh, boy, my recollection of it was, I hate this place. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I don't think it's changed. Okay, great. Well, with that. <laughs> Sorry, no offense to <laughs> Branson. I, I think it has a it has a nice kind of downtown area, but it is basically one big traffic jam from my memory as well. So, <laughs> yeah. well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care, Abby. Let me show you what I'm about to do.